it's like I'm expected to move this mountain. And when you look at this mountain, it's massive, it's huge. And then you're busy talking about how huge and how high and how massive this mountain is. And then you work yourself up to this and you look at it and going, there's no way I'm able to move this mountain. And we talk about, okay, the who can help you? What can, what can be done? What control do you have? And um, where can you start and when can you start? This is Changing Careers, a podcast about the changing nature of MBA careers and how MBAs can change their careers. I am Conrad Chua. Whether you're taking on a new role or changing your life direction, or even studying for an MBA exam, you will find stress. How you manage and positively harness that stress will make a huge difference in your career and life. For today's episode, I'm speaking with Helena Kim, a counsellor with corporate clients in Cambridge, about how people can approach stress in their lives differently. This episode is published just before Christmas, which I personally find stressful with all the travel and family engagements. So Helena will also give us some tips on how to get through this time of year. As always, we start with Helena introducing herself. My name is Helena Kim, and I'm a coaching psychologist. And I work with corporate clients and Cambridge Judge Business School MBA students who want to increase their resilience and wellness for confidence and for success. Helena, you've worked a lot with corporate clients. What are some of the issues that you find most common among senior management in terms of how they cope with their day-to-day work? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of them, regardless of how high they are in the the corporation or the organization, everyone has a crisis of confidence at one point or another. And then they start to second guess themselves. Then that impacts their performance. And also then that impacts their assertiveness and their leadership and then also managing other people. So it um, comes down to at any level. I think we're talking about resilience. We're also talking about confidence. What do you mean by a crisis of confidence? Um, You get to a point where someone gets, let's say for instance, they get promoted to a team leader or to a manager, they, I think they forget that they have all the skills that they need to be able to lead and also to manage. Uh, however, I think that the change in their status or change in the expectations, they start to question their confidence as a leader or as, um, as a manager. And uh, when they call me in, it really is about um, uh, re-wetting their confidence, and also just reaffirming that they actually do have what it takes. And also being able to transfer some of their skills that they already have, uh, refining it and polishing it so they're able to uh, apply those skills with the, with the, in their new role. In the corporate workplace, there are some people who wear stress as a badge of honor. Uh, they say that they can take whatever is being thrown at them. Obviously, if taken to the extreme, this is not healthy for the individual or for the organization. How do you help people reconcile or balance their own approach so that they are able to proactively react to stress? I think we have to first start with a person's definition 
of stress. How are they approaching? How are they defining stress? How are they, um, are they villainizing stress? Uh, and it, the word that I use, are they awfulizing the situation? And um, are they worrying themselves uh, to, or are they driving themselves to sickness or, or what have you? I think it becomes a problem when the, the time and energy that they spend reacting to the stress instead of being proactive to that stress or the stressor. One of the things we, I, I help them do is how are you defining? And then from there, how do we redefine that stress? So that it's manageable, or uh, for instance, um, I think a good example uh, one of my clients said was, "It's like I'm expected to move this mountain." And when you look at this mountain, it's massive, it's huge, and then you're busy talking about how huge and how high and how massive this mountain is. And then you work yourself up to this, and you look at it and going, "There's no way I'm able to move this mountain." And we talk about, okay, the who can help you? What can, what can be done? What control do you have? And um, where can you start? And when can you start? So is that the proactively uh, reacting to stress that you mentioned? Yeah. So they, they do. They awfulize it. They catastrophize it. They make it monumental. And sometimes it feels like that. But the more you think about it in that way, the bigger the stressor will be. So I help them to minimize or even chunk the stress into small, smaller pieces. So the answer to how do you move a mountain is one shovel full at a time. And you get other workers. And, you, and there are, it takes a village to really move that mountain. How can one use stress in a positive way to uh, spur someone, uh, whether it's in their studies or in their workplace? Well, like I said, the op- we, we need the stress because stress is what motivates us to get out of bed, uh, what excites us. And I really think um, stress gets a really bad name. Really, uh, I think we, if we can create an environment where, yes, we need that stress, it is a ne- necessary uh, evil, I think, or I don't want to call it evil. I think it's something that's necessary for us to spur on because it's, the, it's where excitement lives. Where, um, where it's where fear lives. And without fear, there won't be any excitement. So we do need to look at stress in a way that is a, um, you know, when we react to stress, we think it's, um, it's the heart rate goes up, uh, we start to sweat, and um, the, basically it feels like physical signs of anxiety and danger. And people just leave it at that. However, if we can shift that, to say that it's our body's way of getting ready to meet your challenges. Um, it's preparing yourself for, for, to take action. It's really, when you're breathing faster, it's because it's getting more oxygen to the brain so you could think more clearly. But we have villainized stress to the point where as soon as you feel it, you think, oh, I'm anxious and I'm not able to handle this. So again, I think we, if we can redefine and if we could view stress in a different way um, and use the excitement to our advantage. One of the things that, the, that I see with the students working here at the judge school is that they when, they, when I ask them how are they preparing for their studies, they say, well, I have seven hours to study. And, and, and they think they're going to just cram or they're going to really study the, the entire seven hours. And 
what they need to recognize in some of the things that I talk to them uh, about studying is that the average adult attention span is 10 to 20 minutes. So if they really want to study, if you really want to retain, and if you want to have um, to be able to regurgitate and synthesize, yeah, you have to take a break every 18 to 20 minutes. So studying for the full seven hours may not be conducive for you to retain and also um, to have that, uh, the information. But at the same time, if you're, if you're trying to study for seven hours straight, uh, you go into fatigue. The brain goes into fatigue, and that's not conducive for information processing. So just having that information that every 18 to 20 minutes you need to get up and do something just for a minute or so just to take a break, yeah, that, and then you come back, you study another 20 minutes. There's a reason why TED Talk is they only require and they will only have you have the speakers do 18 to 20 minutes because that's as far as our attention span can go, really. And there's a reason why it's so successful. Because within those 20 minutes, that's just enough for a coffee break. If I turn it around, how does a manager identify somebody or somebody working for them who's undergoing a period of unhealthy stress? Oh, I think there's, there's a change in their interaction with other people. Uh, there would be a shift in their mood. Uh, it could be erratic. It could also uh, manifest itself uh, as uh, being impatient. With, uh, with their team members. It also manifests in um, the, the productivity. Uh, and also, the managers can really see uh, the avoidance. Yeah, avoidance in participation in meetings. Why would someone avoid participating in a meeting if they're undergoing unhealthy stress? When you're under stress, your, your mind will, will muddle. And you lose confidence in being able to uh, be uh, uh, to be active or to uh, contribute in uh, in meetings and also in other activities. Like for instance, this is Christmas time, and some of the the, the people who are who may be under a lot of stress will avoid uh, social interactions or Christmas parties and um, other uh, festivities. But that also means that some people could be uh, introverts who don't enjoy. The, 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 the music and all the, the social interactions and uh, the, the small talks and chit-chats. So, so I think that there's something uh, that the managers would need to be aware of. Is that, is, this, is that person not enjoying or not preferring to not participate in the activities because that person is, could be an introvert? Um, or is it that the person... So I think we need to look at, as a manager... You need to be aware of if there's any change in the person's normal behavior. Helena, you were talking about introverts. And of course, in any workplace, there's going to be introverts and extroverts. What's your take on how you can have a workplace where both introverts and extroverts work together? Actually, that's one of my favorite topics. Um, Because there is a mixture of introverts and extroverts. And more importantly, there are internal processors and external processors. Uh, So let me explain. The introverts, generally, they are, or are we, because I'm an introvert, uh, I re-energize and I retreat and I, I um, do really well when in a small group, one-to-one or on my own. As extroverts, 
they will need the external stimulation or the social stimulation. So they become energized and motivated when they're surrounded by other people. And then there's the, uh, when you throw in the juxtaposition of the internal processors, internal processors are people who actually they think first and then they uh, verbalize. Whereas the external processors, they can actually think and speak at the same time. And for them, they sometimes will think out loud. So we've got four of these going on at, at once. And, and so can you be an introvert but be an external processor? Yes, yes, you okay. can, yeah. Uh, so I think people misunderstand that introverts are not the ones, they're not verbal or they're shy. Sociability is, is a factor, but it's not the, the strongest factor of being an, uh, an introvert. I'm an introvert, but I'm highly social. Um, but that doesn't mean that I love being surrounded by uh, a lot of people or going to big parties. So my sociability and my talkability is usually with one-to-one or in a smaller group. It really reminds me that uh, I, I think I'm more of an internal process. And when people ask me a question, I almost, you know, I, I'll give the answer. And that's it. Whereas I guess some people, when you ask them a question, they'll talk for like five minutes about, they'll, they'll talk it through and then they'll deliver the answer. And it's always a challenge for myself having to keep my interest level because I, I keep expecting them to give me the answer in the first 30 seconds. Yes, I have, um, I have a friend who's an external processor. If you tell him, if you ask him what time it is, he'll actually tell you how the, clock, how the watch is made yeah, and where it came from. Uh, and so because they, they're descriptive. They, they see uh, things very differently from an internal processor, where uh, internal processors, yeah, uh, it's almost like just the facts. You ask me this, so I give you that. Whereas an external processor, they want to talk about talking about it. Yeah, so um, it, it's a very interesting uh, process, whereas for you, you become impatient when the person goes on and on. Yeah, where the external processor, when they get your answer, they're thinking, that's it? How in the workplace can uh, introverts, extroverts, internal processes, internal processes get along? They can get along once, once you're aware of what you are and how you um, communicate. Because we're always teaching other people how to relate with us so, and to see us and to, um, and to treat us. So if I know that I'm an external processing in, introvert, I know how I can come across to other people. Same thing. So if you're aware, even if you just know whether someone's an introvert or an extrovert, if you know that you're an extrovert, you're dealing with somebody who's an introvert, you anticipate the person will, be, will need to think about something before they actually say. So when you have a meeting, so if you're a manager who's an extrovert and you're working with someone who's an introvert, you have shorter meetings. You introduce the thoughts, the concept, or the task or the project, and have the introvert uh, team member go away, think about it. And then you have another meeting, another 15-minute meeting later. So then the, the introvert or the internal processor will think about it and is ready to then uh, meet you halfway. But if you, the extra, extroverted person uh, and an external uh, processing person expects the internal, pers- internal processing person or the introvert to give you the answer right there on the spot, yeah, you've uh, lost the battle. So it's, I think, self-aware- self-awareness of who you are and what and how you communicate and also knowing if the other person is different from you. 
Helena, when this episode is uploaded, it'll be just before Christmas. And I don't know about you, but I personally find Christmas very stressful. Uh, I don't like to travel or drive during this time of year, but there's all these commitments, family commitments, for example, and friends that uh, myself or anybody else would, would, would have to, to meet. What's your advice on how to handle the stress of the festive occasion? Yes, it's about accepting reality that this only happens once a year. And you know what? And also, this too shall end. So the, that stress of being around family and buying gifts and what have you, it's not going to last for a long time. So you anticipate that it's going to end on the 27th or the 26th. And you actually need to face that fire and be able to walk through it and look forward to the 26th or the 27th. Because stress also, we can't get rid of Christmas. However, we can work in understanding that it's going to be here. And how are you going to work around it? For instance, shopping, you know, going shopping and dealing with the, the, the carnage at the, the malls. Um, if that's not what you like, and some people really enjoy that kind of hustle and bustle uh, for the, the extroverted people. Yeah. For the rest of us, we shop online. And for Pete's sake, some of these companies, uh, they even wrap it for you. That was Helena Kim on how you can harness stress in your career. I hope you learned something practical that you can apply. And do let me know through the show comments whether that has helped. If you've not done so already, remember to subscribe to this show and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others discover the show. This is the last show of 2018. And I want to wish you and your family a great festive season. And of course, a happy 2019 ahead. I'll be back in the new year with more interviews. So till then, this is Conrad Chua on Changing Careers. Mm-hmm.